Once again, good morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we have begun, I mean, we have begun, yes. We are ending a series in Genesis that we began, do you remember when we began this? July 2019. Now, that would be a long time if we were going every week in this, right? But it's been intermittent. Uh, we've had uh, different preaching series throughout that time frame. But I hope this series has been a blessing to you. It's been a blessing to me. Um, you know, I've read the book of Genesis many times. I even taught through the book of Genesis. But I, I think I've gleaned much more this time through it than at any other time that I've been through this book Well, we've come to the end of this book, the book of origins, the book of beginnings. If you notice the title of the sermon, this book has taken us from Eden to Egypt. And rather than spend our time this morning just in chapter 50, I would like us to take a whirlwind tour, which will end in chapter 50. Uh, I would like us to go from the garden to Goshen. From creation to captivity, we will consider some of the major events uh, that God that, that led God's chosen people to this particular point in time where they are now in Egypt. When we started this series, we saw that God created everything that exists. We saw this creation account. It's not just about creation, but about God and His creative powers. Even though Genesis is, is an historic narrative and account of creation and the beginning of human history, God is the theme of this book. In a word, the theme of Genesis is the gospel. It is my hope and prayer that we will see the mighty hand of God providentially working everything for the good of His people. I hope that as we see the sovereign God of the universe, the God who created everything that exists, that we will have an even greater appreciation for God's promises and an even deeper faith as we anticipate His promises coming true. I would like to focus primarily on what we've learned about God and His covenant promises in Genesis and how the gospel is the golden thread throughout. Let's read a few verses here in chapter 50 and then we'll pray. Chapter 50, I would like to start in verse 15 and read through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And I would submit, in my opinion, this is, I think, one of the closest passages we have in in the book of Genesis that shares the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is Christ who came and suffered at the hands of evil men with wicked intentions for the good of the many. Let's pray. Holy Father, this is your word that you have given to us. You have chosen to reveal yourself to us. And so, Father, help us to see you more clearly today than we ever have. Help us to see Christ as the altogether lovely one. Reach every heart, Father, here today for your glory. I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we will start in Genesis 1-1. Creation. In the very first verse of the creation account, we are taught that God is, etern- is the eternal, self-existent one. What's another word for self-existence? Aseity. From himself. We are taught that God is omnipotent. We are taught that throughout the creation narrative, that God does nothing randomly, but does everything wisely and in a specific order. In other words, orderly. I mean, think for a minute. In the order of creation, God first creates the environment for certain things To live and be. What was created on day one? And God said, let there be light. And he separated the light from the darkness. And then he populated that on day four, correct? What did he populate it with? He populated the the light with the sun, the moon, and the stars. And the the dark with the, the moon and the stars to rule over the night. So he created night and day, and then he populated night and day. Day two, he separates the waters and, and, and the firmament. Okay, So that now that there's, there's water, and then there's air. And then he populates that on day five, right? The fish and the sea creatures and the birds of the air. He created the environment for these creatures to live in. And then of course on day three, he creates dry land. And what does he create on day six? He populates the dry land. And so he creates the environment in an orderly way so that he can populate those things of his creation to where they can exist. That that is so much more logical than a piece of slime crawls out of a mud puddle 
I mean, how many times would a piece of slime have to crawl out of the mud puddle and then die before it developed lungs? That's not logical. God did everything wisely and in order. God is a wise God. He spoke everything into existence. He's a powerful God. That's, that's not something that we can explain. That's something we accept by faith. See, we can't even imagine what nothing is. Because nowhere in our existence is there nothing. There is something. There is something. Even in the vacuum of space, there is something. Space. And time. We measure time and space by light years, but it's still measurable. God created everything that exists, and He did it in six literal 24-hour periods. There was no day age. There was no gap. There was no first creation and second creation. That's one of the hopes that we have as we're waiting for the second creation, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. God created all the creatures and He created them to reproduce after their kind. And we saw in, in, in chapter 2, we're given an a, a in-depth look at, at what actually took place on day 6 when God created man, male and female. Because Adam was created first, and he didn't have any of his own kind. And so God made woman to complete the man. So now he has fellowship with his own kind. On the seventh day, God rested from his creative works. But God didn't just kick his feet up and take a break. What did God do on the seventh day? He made the day holy. He hollowed it and made it holy. And let me tell you, dear ones, the Sabbath day is still a holy day. Now we call it the Lord's Day the first day of the week, because that's the day that our Savior was brought forth from the grave. And so the Christian Sabbath is Sunday, the Lord's day. But it is still the Sabbath. God made it such in creation. It wasn't just a, an Exodus account of God giving the command, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God made the day holy on the seventh day that this earth was in existence. We should still regard it as such and observe it as such. We're given the covenant of works in chapter 2. Adam is given a covenant, which is, I mean, there's arguments that, that you know, the covenant of works includes you know, tending the garden and, and, and working for six days and things like that. But specifically, specifically, the covenant was given in a negative form. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can have everything else that I've created. All these other fruits that I've given you are yours to eat. Now where do we see a picture of that in reverse? When Jesus was led into the wilderness, He didn't have all these other trees to eat. 
He had nothing. And yet he obeyed God. Adam had everything and disobeyed. Now we believe in the covenant of works. Of course it states in our confession. Had Adam stayed in that state of obedience. Then he would enjoy the the, the fellowship with God forever. It wasn't a perpetual covenant to begin with. But rather a a conditional, a a probationary period. We don't know how long that probationary period would have been. But we also know this. God knew Adam would fall. Because the plan A is the cross. There is no plan B. That was God's reason for creation. Was that he would be fully and completely glorified in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to save a people that are undeserving of His grace. We get to chapter 3 and we have the fall. Now there are many different things we could pull out of chapter 3 that I think we covered when we were going through that. Uh, Adam, as head of his house, was supposed to be protector He was supposed to tend the garden. He could have chased the snake out. He should have, as the keeper of the garden noticed that something's off about that creature. He left his wife unattended. Now, there's people say that he was off doing something else. I think in the text it shows that he was there with his wife. He allows his wife to engage in conversation with this creature. And consequently, what does Satan do? He attacks the word of God. He attacks the character of God. And he attacks the motives of God. He causes Eve to question these three things. And she's deceived. And she does take of the fruit and eat it. The one tree in the garden, the only tree in the garden that they're told not to touch and eat. And she eats. And what do we read? And then she gave to her husband. Eve was deceived. Adam willfully disobeyed. Adam willfully disobeyed God. And immediately their eyes are open and they realize their shame. They're naked and they try to hide their shame. They try to hide their, uh, not just their nakedness physically, but they tried to hide the shame of their guilt by hiding from God, which is an impossible thing because God is omnipresent. And so God confronts them of their sin, about their sin. And of course, you know, the blame game. Well, God, it's basically your fault because you gave me this woman. Right? The woman that you gave me ate and then gave to me. Right? Well, well, what about you, Eve? What's your excuse? Well, Well, the serpent deceived me. He didn't ask the serpent for an excuse. But immediately starts pronouncing a curse. He curses the snake for its complicit uh, um, participation. But the curse, the main part of the curse is against Satan himself. Who came in the embodiment of of a serpent, of a snake. But in that curse, we have what? 
covenant of grace proclaimed. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. That means what? That Satan has a people and that the woman has a people, right? These, these offspring, this seed. Satan still has seed today. Even though his head has been crushed already. We are still at enmity with Satan and his seed. He promises that, that the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the snake, of the snake, of the serpent. And we know that that is fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Where that evil, vile serpent, that Satan has been bound and cast into the pit. He's not dead yet. He's still wiggling. You, you ever kill a, a poisonous snake? Any snake for that matter, and, and they wiggle a lot after they're dead. But a poisonous snake can still kill you after you have killed it. It can still inflict serious injury. That poison is still deadly. And some snakes, that poison remain deadly for years. Satan is still wiggling. He's still in his death throes, but he is still just as much going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is still the great enemy. God promises a covenant of grace, and I believe ratified it in blood by killing animals and clothing Adam and Eve with the skin of these animals. That blood shed there, pointing to the precious blood that will be shed on the cross. And so the covenant of grace begins. Dear ones, we're still in the covenant of grace. We are still in the covenant of grace. But the covenant of works still exists today too. Because all the sons of Adam, all the daughters of Adam that are not found in Christ are still responsible to that covenant of works and they will be judged for their failure. Even though God was gracious in chapter 3, you know, we say, well, He could have, what if, you know, He could have come and just killed them, destroyed them, started over, right? That was not His plan, so I say He couldn't have done that because that was not His will. Because the covenant of redemption states that God will redeem a fallen people. And that covenant was formed before the creation existed. The covenant of redemption is an eternal covenant. Which the covenant of works and the covenant of grace fall under this covenant of redemption. God couldn't have done anything but what He did. Because that was His will. That was His plan. And so he did not kill them. They did die spiritually immediately on their sin. And then the aging process started. And they started dying physically. And we first see this death in chapter 4. 
where Cain kills his brother Abel. And even in that crime, God is gracious to Cain because he marks Cain so that no one will take vengeance on Cain. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But then we see that sin is progressing. How do we know it's progressing? When we get to chapter 5, what is the most repeated, one of the most repeated lines in chapter 5? And he died. The ravages of sin. Even though they lived unimaginable lengths of life. Nobody made it to a thousand. Methuselah got pretty close. But they still ended the same. The wages of sin is death. And so we read over and over in chapter 5. And he died. Sin must be punished. We learn about God in Genesis that He's gracious and merciful, but He is also just. He is also angry with sin. And so, by the time we get to chapter 6, we find the world in a horrible, horrible state. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That verse never ceases to amaze me. And yet it is so true. It is true then and it is true now. Look at that. That every intention of the thoughts, not just your thoughts are evil, but, but the motive behind your thoughts. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, and that is continually. You want one verse in the whole of Scripture that can explain total depravity, it's that verse. Every part and parcel of fallen mankind is evil, continually. Even when lost people do good things, that is sin. A lost person can do nothing but sin until God intervenes in their life and brings them to repentance and faith in Christ. And even in our, our, our state of being saved, even in our state of grace, we still fight this nature. Amen. <laughs> Amen. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, and the creeping things, and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Even in the midst of God's anger, even in the midst of his wrath, he stuck to his plan. His plan was that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that hasn't happened yet in Genesis chapter 6. So in chapters 6 through 8, we see God judging the world with a catastrophic worldwide flood that destroys everything except what's in the ark. God then blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth, we read. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. 
chapter 7, verse 23. You know, in our day and age, we, we get this mystical idea that God is love. And God is love. I, I, I don't dispute that at all. That's only one of his attributes. We see in Genesis chapters 6 through 8, God is wrath. God does not hold back from punishing sin. That should be a stark warning for us. Then we come to chapter 9, where we have life after the flood. We were looking at the antediluvian age, and now we're looking at life after the flood, post-flood era. And of course, we'll briefly consider this, and then we'll get to the patriarchal era. One thing to consider in this, this state was the Noahic covenant. See, after the flood, Noah and his family come out and they do what? One of the first things they do, worship. They offer a sacrifice and they worship God. God blesses them, tells them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And then God enters into a covenant, but not, not just with Noah, but with Noah's descendants, and actually with the entire planet. Because God promises never again to destroy the earth and its inhabitants. Period. No, he didn't say that. Never to destroy it again with water. Uh, he will destroy the earth and its inhabitants at the final day of judgment. Those that are not redeemed. The earth, the, the Bible describes this destruction as with fire. The heavens and the elements will melt away like wax. And then we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And the wicked will be cast into everlasting destruction and the, the redeemed will be brought into everlasting life in the presence of Christ. And so the flood gives us a, a, a brief and yet small glimpse of the final judgment. Because this judgment, one, unlike the final judgment, it wasn't total. Even though it was a cataclysmic worldwide flood, there were survivors. And unlike the final judgment, this judgment did not remove sin from the earth. We see that right after the flood, do we not? Noah plants a vineyard, makes some wine, and he gets drunk. And then one of his sons sins against him. We don't need to go into all the speculation on that. We just know it happens. But we see the rebellion continue. You see, the water was not able to wash away sin. The Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there will be no remission for sin. Water can't do it. Not even a worldwide flood. What did God tell told, uh, uh, Noah and his family? The same thing that he told Adam and Eve, right? Be fruitful and multiply. He told this in the form of a blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. It's just like back in the garden. Don't eat of the tree. What did they say? I will. Go into all the earth. 
multiply, subdue the earth, fill it. We won't. So what do they do? They build a tower. This shows their complete lack. This is just several, several um, generations past Noah now. They, they, they show their complete lack of faith in God. I mean, he has promised to never again flood the earth. We better build a tower in case he does it again. I mean, get the description of the flood back in chapter 7. How high were the waters? To cover even the tallest mountains. Can you build a tower that tall? It just shows what, what not trusting, it shows the stupidity and not trusting God and not believing his promises. And in their disobedience, they build one city, they all are together, they are one people, one language, building a tower. It's interesting, not only. Was their language one language, but their words were the same words. You know what that means. They were all in agreement. They were saying the same thing. We don't trust God, so we're going to build this tower. But we also learned in chapter 1, which will come to pass here, in chapter 11, that God is omnipotent. And nothing can stop God's plan or his purposes. Not even a combined effort of rebellion. So we read, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. Fill the earth and subdue it. We won't. Oh yes, you will. And he does that by confusing their languages. So that they have to cluster and go. I, I can't imagine that you're, you're sitting there working next to your buddies and talking and all of a sudden what are you what are you babbling about <laughs> oh yeah that's the name of our town right what do you say and then you have to go around and search and find out other people that you can understand and so they they slowly cluster together and groups were hey you're part of our group you can understand us we can understand you and and now they can't live together because they can't understand each other. So they, they disperse, just as God had told them to do to begin with. Yeah, we could what if this all day long, but if they had obeyed in the first place, you think we'd only have one language? We'd still be rebellious. <laughs> that brings us, at the end of chapter 11, to the patriarchs, the era of the patriarchs. And the era of the patriarchs will encompass the rest of the book of Genesis, from chapter 12 to chapter 50. We'll look at this just in three, three of the, excuse me, five of the patriarchs, okay? We, know we have the three main patriarchs and then two of Jacob's sons, we will consider. They're not really patriarchs, if you will, but maybe uh, heads of uh, tribes in the nation of Israel. So we have Abraham. Abram is he's first introduced to us in chapter 12. We're not going to cover his entire life. We're not going to look at everything that he did or didn't do. But we're going to look at some of his character traits. And, and we're also going to consider the, the Abrahamic covenant that is given there. That's another working of the covenant of grace. 
as the covenant of grace is further revealed to God's people. Abram was an idolatrous heathen. He came from a land where they worshipped the moon and, 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 and stars and things like that. He was an idolatrous heathen who was called by God to leave his home, his family, his country, and his religion. Can you imagine God calling you to do that? Well, we can't because we have the true religion. He wouldn't call us to leave that, would he? Abraham was called out of his home, out of his family, out of his country, out of his religion. To move to a place that he didn't know, where he was a stranger. A place that God would show him. In faithful obedience, Abram embarked on a life of faith, trusting God. I wish I could say that it was a life of perfect faith, but we know from the scripture his faith, even though he was considered a friend of God, his faith was imperfect. We know that he was a habitual liar when it comes to the identity of his wife. He was easily persuaded by his wife to take matters into his own hands rather than wait on God's promise of new, numerous offspring by um, taking Hagar as a wife, as a second wife, as a concubine. But even though he was not perfect, God continued to bless Abram. How, how, did he, how did he bless him in Egypt? He left there with great wealth. Then that doesn't mean God's going to bless you with great wealth if you go disobey him. Don't, don't take that away from there. Okay, you're not Abram. Abram was loyal to God and to family, although not perfectly. But we see this in the incident where he went and rescued Lot. We see this when he interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. He interceded because Lot lived down there. And he interceded. Remember, he was, you know, if you find 50 righteous, God, will, will you spare them? Yes, I'll spare them for 50. Well, don't, don't, don't think I'm being presumptuous, but um, what about 45? Okay, 45. What about 30? It gets all the way down to 10. Notice that when he got down to 10, God didn't just let him barter down to 5. God left. I'll spare him for 10. Goodbye. Of course, God already knew the outcome. God knew the hearts of the people. God didn't need to actually go to Sodom to find out if it was true. God sent those men to, to Sodom to rescue Lot and his family. Abram was a godly man asking God to save the ungodly from destruction for the sake of a few righteous. Do we pray like that today? Do we ask God to save the, the, this country for the sake of the righteous in it? It's part of why we pray for our leaders, right? That we may live in peace. Do we intercede for the lost? On a regular basis. Notice Abraham's progression. He kept on. He kept on. He persevered. Until. At, until the prayer was over. 
when Abram was when Abraham, excuse me, was a hundred years old, God fulfilled his promise of an heir, and Isaac was born. Now we already know Abraham had one heir who was not going to be his heir, Ishmael, because he was not the son of promise. He was the son of the flesh. But when Abram was a hundred years old, God blessed him with Isaac. I, Abram's, Abraham's faith was further tested when God commanded Abraham to go and sacrifice his only son, to kill him and burn him up on an altar as a, as a burnt offering. Abraham obeyed. And at the last second, God intervened and provided a substitute. Where do we see that in Scripture? When God provides the substitute on the cross, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Abraham lived to be 175 years old. But now let's look at the Abrahamic covenant. I think it was given in, in, in various degrees and stages. Some, some would argue, no, it's only given in this spot here. I would say it was given in stages. I think it was first, first stage was actually in, in uh, chapter 12. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12. Notice the eyes there. God is speaking. God's not telling Abraham, you must do this, you must do this. I will do this, God says. And then chapter 15. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kedemites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites and Jebusites. All these sites. This was ratified with the blood of several animals. Remember that when Abraham cut these animals in half and then God passed through the halves of the animals and ratified the covenant with blood there. And then again in chapter 17 where God changes Abram's name to Abraham, Sarah's name, Sarai's name to Sarah, and then gives him the sign of the covenant. God said, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. You see how this is progressing. Now this is the time he's promising now kings. Kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is my covenant which you shall keep. Now, these, all these things God's going to do, <clears throat> but in this partnership now, there's a part that Abraham must do and his offspring. And what is that? Circumcision. But we know now from the New Testament that circumcision is no longer a physical act that is done in the flesh. But the children of Abraham are who? Those who have been circumcised in the heart. In other words, who have experienced the saving grace of our wonderful God. And then it brings us to Isaac. As with Abraham, so now with Isaac. 
Well, we know that Isaac shared in his father's traits of lying about the identity of his wife. Of the three patriarchs, we are given the least information about Isaac, right? However, he, he does end up in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. He was an imperfect man. Where he differed from his father Abraham, though, was when his wife was barren, rather than take another wife, he prayed for her. And he did so for 20 years. Can you imagine? That that would take some faith. 20 years of praying for her, and then God listens and grants her children. We know the story, the, the twins. But we also see in Genesis chapter 26 where God passes on the Abrahamic covenant to Isaac. He passes this on. God is saying that the same promises I give to your father, I give to you. And 26 verses 2 through 5. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. And I will be with you and bless you. For you and your offspring I will give all these lands. He had already told that to Abraham. Everywhere your footsteps is going to belong to you, right? And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. He's passing on the Abrahamic covenant. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There's that messianic portion of the Abrahamic covenant again. How are all the nations of the earth blessed? Well, if we go to Revelation chapter 5, we see. Where there are you to open the scroll? For you have redeemed unto yourself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and kindred. And that's how all the nations of the earth are blessed through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have the Jacob. Jacob is one of two sons. One of twins, the younger of the two twins. Two twins, that's kind of repeating, right? He comes out second, but only by minutes, if that, because he's got a hold of his brother's heel. Out of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, I think Jacob, we see this downward progression has the worst of the character traits of the three. He lives up to his name. He is a liar. He is a cheat. One thing we learn about these narratives is God is so gracious. He is so gracious. With patient. Patient. Accomplishing his purposes in his time. He, like his dad Isaac, played favorites, which in both instances came to produce uh, disastrous results in the family. It's it's not right to play favorites in a family. I mean, you can you you can't love well. You can't you can love both equally. You or, or more than one equally. You can't treat them equally. 
you have to treat them how they need to be treated, okay? Like if you have a child that disobeys you, you don't spank all your children just because that child disobeyed you, okay? But you still love them all. And it's hard in our sinful nature not to play favorites, right? We tend to gradually, uh, just like Isaac did, lean toward his son Esau because he was a man of the field. He hunted. He loved to eat his food. He loved to eat his wild game. Jacob was like that. He played favorites with with not just his sons, but with his wives. God changed Jacob. God changed his name to Israel. And finally moves Israel and his family to Egypt. God also passed the Abrahamic covenant on to Jacob. Now this is, this is important. God gave it to Abraham. God gave it to Isaac. God gave it to Jacob. And that's where we'll see a change. After that. Because Jacob now will pass on the Abrahamic covenant to all of his sons in various varying degrees. Because they are now, when they are in Egypt, called for the first time the nation of Israel. They will all be recipients of God's covenant promises. At least in the the physical aspects of of God's covenant promises. And all of those promises are realized in who? In Christ. If you are in Christ, the Bible says, you are the offspring of Abraham. What land has he promised you? Some strip of dirt in the Middle East? The new heavens and the new earth. Where we will be with him and reign with him for eternity. We're going to learn things like that in our Bible study of Revelations. I hope you are all curious enough and want to learn and can come to the Bible studies. We're going to look briefly and very briefly at two of Jacob's sons. We're going to look first at Judah. Now, when we were first really introduced to Judah... In chapter at the end of chapter thirty-seven, we're not given a good picture, are we? Who was it that suggested they sell Joseph rather than kill him? Judah, and they obeyed him, and they sold Joseph into slavery. So he was responsible for Joseph being sold into slavery. He was just like the rest of his brothers, deceitful. They deceived their father into thinking that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. He was unfaithful to his family. And that he did not keep his promise to his daughter-in-law, Tamar. He was sexually promiscuous. And that he thought he was having relations with a prostitute. Which happened to be his daughter-in-law, Tamar. But then we see a change. Because when Tamar is caught, when it is discovered that she is pregnant out of wedlock, he first proclaims, burn her. But when the truth comes out, that he's actually the father of her unborn children, child at the time. They didn't, I, I guess they didn't know her twins until they came out. He says, she is righteous, not me. And not, not that she was righteous in the act, 
but she was righteous in the fact that he had made a promise and he failed to keep it. And then after that, we see his, his character change because when, when we get to Egypt now, before the families moved there, when, when the prospect of Benjamin being in slavery, Judah knows that will kill his father. And so Judah intercedes for Benjamin and offers himself as a what? A substitute. There and again we see the picture of Christ standing in as our substitute. And so Judah, his character radically changes and, and, and consequently his rise to prominence is elevated and he becomes basically the spokesman and the leader of the brothers. We will see that also in the blessing that Jacob bestows on Judah, passing on the messianic portion to Judah, that kings, the scepter of power, will not depart from Judah until Shiloh come, or until that one comes who will hold that scepter for all eternity. And then we have to consider briefly Joseph. Though Joseph is not included in the messianic portion of the Abrahamic covenant, he is included, doubly so, in that Jacob adopts two of his, his two sons and makes them his own. Though, so they, those two boys, will have tribes in the nation of Israel named after them. There's no tribe of Joseph. There's actually two tribes of Joseph, a tribe of Joseph in two sections, Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph lived the first 17 years of his life in his father's house in Canaan, pampered by his father. This caused his brothers to hate him, and we know that he was sold into slavery. But Joseph remains faithful to God. Even in the, the, the face of, of elicited, um, uh, solicited, excuse me, uh, um, sin, Potiphar's wife, and he remains faithful to God. He says, how can I do this great sin and sin against God? Joseph understood who we sin against when we sin. And he fled from it. And he paid the price because Potiphar's wife, of course, lies. And then Joseph is cast into prison. And providentially, God rescues him years later using a series of four dreams. You remember the dream of the... the chief cupbearer and the chief baker right and how when pharaoh has dreams several years later the chief cupbearer says oh my goodness i remember my sin now i i i told him i would refer you to him you know and so he tells pharaoh about joseph and pharaoh sends for joseph and joseph gets cleaned up and comes before pharaoh and joseph is able to interpret through the power of god pharaoh's dreams and thus, God uses that to elevate Joseph to the second person of power in the land of Egypt and uses and gives Joseph wisdom to prepare for the famine, not only to prepare for the famine, but to administer those things rightly to the people so that they last past the famine, so that they last, so they have food while their next crop is growing after the famine until the, they actually can harvest that. And that's the wisdom that God gave Joseph. 
But we see the faith of Joseph as well. Just like his father Jacob, when Joseph nears death, we read, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. He believed the promises that were given to his father Jacob, that God would bring them back from the land of Egypt to the land of promise. And as an act of faith, he says, Bring my bones with you when God rescues you. But most importantly about this book, we have to consider what it is we've learned about God. We learn that God is omnipotent, that He's all-powerful. We have learned that God is gracious, and that rather killing Adam and Eve right away, He put forth the covenant of grace and the promise of the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. We learn that God is eternally self-existent, that He precedes creation, that He is not confined by time and space. The aseity of God, the transcendent nature of God. We learn that He is patient with His erring children. I mean, I believe that those narratives were given to us to build our faith in God and to, and to show that He is a faithful God and that He is a patient God. And that gives us hope when we sin. Yes, God is patient and, and, and God is forgiving. The Bible promises us that if we confess our sins, because God is faithful, He will forgive us from our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we learn that and we get a picture of that in Genesis. We see that nothing can stop or will stop or hinder the divine plan for God for the salvation of His people. Not circumstances, not disobedient members of the covenant community, and certainly not evil actions of those outside the covenant community. Nothing can stop God's plan. We learn that in Genesis. In the life of Joseph, his brothers inside the covenant community tried to get rid of him. <laughs> Pharaoh, I mean Potiphar's wife outside the covenant community tried to get rid of him. But God had a plan and purpose and nothing can stop God's plan. God is faithful to his word. We've learned that in Genesis. God is a covenant keeping God. We've learned that in Genesis. We've learned more than a few ways in which God is progressively revealing Himself. If you want to just, and we don't have time this morning, but just look at how He progressively, even in chapters 1 and 2, Elohim said, Elohim said. Chapter 2, it changes. Elohim Yahweh. And God, through His names, reveals who He is. Because remember, who's God revealing Himself to in Genesis? Primarily, the nation of Israel. Because Moses is pinning this under divine inspiration. God is revealing himself to... Now, God didn't tell anybody in Genesis, I am Yahweh. He didn't do that until Moses was at the burning bush. But Moses knew who God was and divinely revealed that in chapter 2. And so on. All the different names reveals God's nature and His character. 
We learn God revealing him to himself to us in typology. Uh, as we get pictures and glimpses and, and shadows, if you will, of, of the cross to come. And of course, we, dear ones, have the benefit of having the New Testament that translates for us and interprets for us the Old Testament. They only had types and shadows. We have the whole picture, at least as, as far as God has revealed it to us. We even know the end, which we're going to be studying starting next Lord's Day. But I think one of the most important things that we can take away from Genesis and the most helpful for our daily lives and the most uh, uh, edifying to us as we walk in our Christian lives is that God keeps his promises. How does that edify you? When you look at and see people that you love who are still lost, God promises, Jesus promises, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. God, in the form of Christ, said, I have not come to save the righteous, but I have come to call sinners to repentance. That's a promise. That's a statement. And Jesus promises that whoever comes to me, I will no eyes cast out. So you have hope from God's promises for your lost loved ones. But you also have hope for yourselves. Because Jesus said, I will never leave you and forsake you. I will be with you till the end of the age. If I go away, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Behold, I am coming quickly. And so we have those promises that, that hold us up each and every day of our lives that we can bank on because God has shown us in the book of Genesis and throughout Scripture. He is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. So in light of what we've learned in the book of Genesis about God, what should our response be? First, self-examination. We must, in light of who God is, examine ourselves. What is our relationship to Him? Is He our Lord and Savior? Is He our Father? Or are we still enemies of Him? Will He be our judge and jury and executioner? What is your relationship with this God that has revealed Himself to you? You must examine yourself to answer that question. Are we listening and properly responding to what he's telling us about the person and work of Christ? Are we ignoring him and despising his message? A a another response that we should have, a proper response, is repentance. We are required to repent of our sins. God requires holiness from us. If Jesus is not your Savior, you must repent and flee to Him for mercy. If Jesus is your Savior, you still must repent when you fail Him, when you dishonor His name through sin. Repenting means not just confessing, but turning away and forsaking that sin. Faith is another uh, required response to who this God is, who He has revealed Himself to be. When God bestows the gift of faith to you, what do you do with it? Lock it up in the safe? Save it for later? No, you place it in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You believe that His life was sufficient to bestow righteousness on you. You believe that His death was sufficient to wash away your sins. You believe that His resurrection was sufficient to give you the promise of the hope of the resurrection. And you believe that even now He intercedes for you and that for your sanctification. That is your faith. But there's also another response to God because He's revealed Himself to us. And that is what? Worship. Proper worship in spirit and in truth. The only true and right response to God to who He has revealed Himself to be is to worship. He is eternally worthy as Creator, Sustainer, Father, Lord, Savior, Comforter. We must worship Him and only Him because He alone is worthy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are to love God and to love our neighbor. Jesus said that the greatest commandments are these, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your strength, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no other commandments greater than these. Loving God and loving your neighbor are proper responses to God, to the God who has revealed himself to us. And finally, obedience. I mean, obedience kind of covers a lot of these, (laughs) if not all. Loving obedience. If we love God properly as we ought, we will obey Him. Let me say that again. If we love God as we ought, we will obey Him. Not might, not should. We will obey Him. Although being we've learned one thing in Genesis, we will not do so perfectly. Praise God for His patience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Dear ones, in light of who God has revealed Himself to be, let us respond properly to Him in repentance and faith, in true worship, and in loving obedience. Let us hold fast to His wonderful promises and eagerly await our Lord's return. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful book, this book of Genesis, this book of origins, this book of beginnings. But Father, we know it doesn't end there at chapter 50. You have further revealed yourself to us throughout the entirety of your word. And finally, and most perfectly, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we all love him supremely. May we all look to him in faith. Cause those who are lost to flee to him, Father. For we know that he has promised that all you give to him. He will lose none. Father, open our hearts. Grant your great grace and mercy to us. Help us to persevere in our faith. Strengthen our faith by believing in your promises, Holy Father. And yes, Father, we can say with the Apostle John, Even so, Lord Jesus, come. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You will stand with me and we will sing hymn.
of celebration on Jordan's stormy banks I stand, hymn 423. 